Welcome to the Case Collective podcast. Hosted by Barry Nelson Lawyers, Case Collective is a monthly discussion covering significant decisions handed down by courts across Australia. We'll keep you updated on major developments in case law and how they're likely to affect the Australian insurance industry and beyond. Now for our latest episode. Welcome to episode three of the Case Collective and the first for 2022. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw. I'm a senior associate at Barry Nilsson Lawyers, and I'm joined today once again by my colleague in the Barry Nilsson Brisbane office, Simi Singh. If the cases we've extracted for this month's podcast are anything to go by, it's been a relatively fruitful Christmas and New Year period for insurers, with three of the four cases we are focusing on today resulting in wins for the respective insurer. We'll also be discussing a decision which dealt with a rejected voluntary assumption of risk defence in the context of a single vehicle motorbike accident involving an intoxicated rider. Simi, if you wouldn't mind kicking us off, I think we're starting with a suspicious fire in the Queensland Supreme Court. That's right, Kingsley. The first case note I have for you relates to the Queensland Supreme Court decision in CASA Betting Proprietary Limited and Insurance Australia Limited. The issue here was whether the director of the plaintiff caused a fire and then advanced a fraudulent insurance claim for the resultant loss. By way of background, on 29th of August 2015, CASA's bed manufacturing and wholesale business was destroyed by a factory fire. CASA promptly made a claim for indemnity under its insurance policy. The defendant insurer, IAL, alleged that the fire had been deliberately lit by CASA's sole director, Mr. John Casamatis. As you would expect, the insurance policy contained an express exclusion for loss or damage caused by willful acts of the insured. So IAL denied liability on the basis that the exclusion was triggered and that the claim was made fraudulently within the meaning of Section 56.1 of the Insurance Contracts Act, which provides that an insurer may refuse to pay a fraudulent insurance claim. Mr. Casamatis denied responsibility for the fire and emergency services and police investigations did not result in anyone being charged with a criminal offence in relation to it. Casa sought damages from IAL for breach of the insurance policy. At trial, Justice Burns was satisfied on the balance of probabilities that Mr. Casamatis was responsible for the fire, despite the fact that the allegation was denied and there was no clear financial motive. His Honour considered the evidence connecting Mr. Casamatis to the fire, although circumstantial, was so potent that the absence of a proven motive was less important. His Honour was satisfied the facts gave rise to a reasonable and definite inference that Mr. Casamatis started the fire and knowingly advanced a fraudulent insurance claim. It was accepted that the evidence established, firstly, that at about the same time a deliberate fire was started in the factory, a deliberate fire was also started in a skip bin outside of the factory, and accelerant had been applied to both fires. Secondly, Mr. Casamatis was the perpetrator who lit the fires. He was alone in the factory when the fires were set. He then attempted to avoid detection when he was driving away from the factory by switching off his headlights at different times. Mr. Casamatis had attempted to explain this act, which was captured on CCTV footage, on the basis that he was undertaking motor vehicle diagnostics. His Honour considered this explanation was fanciful. And thirdly, Mr. Casamatis lied to investigators about the time he left the factory to distance himself from the fire, in circumstances where the fire was seen by witnesses minutes after his departure from the factory. His Honour found the fire and resultant loss were expressly excluded from cover under the policy, being caused by the willful conduct of Mr. Casamatis with the knowledge and consent of CASA. It was further found to be a claim made fraudulently within the meaning of Section 59 of the ICA. CASA's claim was dismissed by the court and judgment entered for IAL on the whole of the claim. 
In terms of key implications, this case demonstrates a situation where the high bar for proving a fraudulent claim was overcome. It is particularly interesting because, in this case, despite the absence of any clear motive on the part of the insured and the serious nature of the allegations, the available circumstantial evidence proved to be so overwhelming as to satisfy the court of willful conduct by the insured. Thanks, Simi. My first case note relates to the decision of Liberty Mutual Insurance Company and Sunwater handed down by the New South Wales Supreme Court. It relates to the hugely significant class action arising out of the 2011 Brisbane flood. Avid Case Collective podcast listeners may recall we discussed the outcome of the related New South Wales Court of Appeal decision dealing with the class action back in episode one. For those who aren't familiar, though, the class action was brought by a range of plaintiffs affected by the Brisbane floods. The defendants to the class action were SEQ Water, who owned and operated Wyvernhoe and Somerset Dams, Sunwater, who was engaged by SEQ Water to provide flood management services, and the Queensland Government. In the first instance decision of the class action, the judge found that Sunwater's engineers had breached a duty of care owed to the plaintiffs and that Sunwater was vicariously liable for that breach. The primary judge also found SEQ Water and the Queensland Government liable. There was an appeal of that decision. However, before the appeal was heard, both Sunwater and the Queensland Government agreed settlement terms with the plaintiffs. Interestingly, SEQ Water pressed on with its appeal and was in fact successful in overturning the original decision against it. The present matter is limited to Sunwater's exposure to the class action and its entitlement to insurance cover in relation to that exposure. So in January 2011, at the time of the flood, Sunwater held a combined general liability and professional indemnity policy with QBE Europe. In relation to the general liability aspect of the policy, Sunwater also maintained various levels of excess cover. The first excess layer was insured by Liberty Mutual. The terms of the excess cover provided by Liberty was identical to the general liability component of the QBE policy. Relevantly, those terms included an exclusion for claims arising out of rendering or failure to render professional advice or service for a fee by the insured. Liberty declined cover to Sunwater on the basis that the relevant claim arose out of the rendering or failure to render professional advice. Sunwater accepted that its engineers were providing a professional service but submitted the service provided by Sunwater, i.e. the insured entity, was merely the provision of the engineers who in turn provided the professional service. His Honour did not accept Sunwater's characterisation of the services it provided to SEQ Water and instead concluded that in reality Sunwater had provided professional engineering services, albeit via its employees. A secondary argument advanced by Sunwater was that the professional services exclusion only applies to claims made by SEQ Water, being the recipient of the relevant professional service. However, his honour noted that the exclusion was expressed quite broadly by reference to claims arising out of the rendering of professional advice. His honour concluded on that basis that there was no textual support for reading down the exclusion so that it applied only to claims made by the intended recipient of the professional advice or service. On those grounds, Sunwater's claim for entitlement under the excess layer of insurance was rejected, and in circumstances where there was apparently no excess insurance taken out in relation to the professional indemnity side of the policy, 
it's not clear where the balance of the agreed settlement sum is to be funded. It's noteworthy that Sunwater's exposure pursuant to the settlement agreement reached with the plaintiffs was in the vicinity of $130 million. So a very interesting outcome um, and possibly one to keep an eye on uh, going forward. Thanks, Kingsley. My second case note relates to a tragic set of circumstances dealt with in the Victorian Supreme Court decision of Biggs and O'Connor. In this case, the wife of a pillion passenger killed in a single vehicle collision succeeded in her claim for damages against the intoxicated driver because a valenti or voluntary assumption of risk defence was unsuccessful and the duty owed to her was independent of other duties. By way of background, the defendant was the rider of a motorcycle involved in a single vehicle collision. The plaintiff's husband, Biggs, was his pillion passenger at the time. The defendant, Biggs, and two other people, being Edwards and Allen, had played an 18-hole round of golf in the afternoon while consuming alcoholic drinks. All four persons then kept company together and consumed further alcoholic drinks over another three hours. When the group decided to leave the golf club, Edwards and Allen tried on three separate occasions to discourage the defendant from riding his motorcycle and offered him a ride in their car. The defendant refused and Biggs decided to ride with the defendant to keep him company. The defendant was involved in a single vehicle accident which tragically resulted in Biggs' death. The plaintiff, Biggs' wife, sued the defendant seeking damages for psychiatric injury. At trial, the judge found that the evidence supported the conclusions that, first, Biggs was aware of the defendant's consumption of alcohol during the round of golf, but not the number of drinks consumed. Second, Biggs was likely aware of the defendant's consumption of alcohol in the clubhouse after the round of golf and also aware of the number of drinks consumed. Third, the defendant had not reached peak alcohol absorption by the time of the incident and therefore his blood alcohol concentration was at or above 0.125%. Fourth, the defendant did not have any overt signs of significant intoxication such as slurring of his speech and unsteady gait. And fifth, the concern which led Edwards and Allen to suggest the defendant refrain from riding his motorcycle stemmed largely from the defendant's emotional upset at recalling his late wife and from a concern that he may encounter police during his ride while his blood alcohol concentration was over 0.05%, rather than a genuine concern as to the defendant's capacity and judgment being affected by his level of intoxication. Biggs likely held the same concern. Therefore, the trial judge concluded that the defendant had not proven that Biggs believed the defendant to be so grossly intoxicated that he wouldn't be safe to drive, or that he voluntarily accepted the risk of riding with the defendant on the motorcycle in that condition. So the Valenti defence failed. His Honour also found that the duty of care owed by the defendant to the plaintiff was independent of the duty owed to Biggs. In this respect, His Honour specifically stated that the duty asserted by the plaintiff was not novel because existing authorities recognise that a driver of a motor vehicle should have in contemplation the potential of mental harm to the spouse of a primary victim injured in an accident caused by the driver's negligence. The duty of care owed to a secondary victim is not dependent upon an established or pre-existing duty of care being owed by the wrongdoer to the primary victim. It is not necessary for a secondary victim to establish that the primary victim has a good cause of action against the driver in order for the secondary victims to succeed. In terms of key implications, this decision reinforces the difficulty in establishing the defences of no duty of care owed or valenti, requiring defendants to prove actual knowledge of intoxication and the acceptance of any risks associated with a reduced capacity caused by intoxication. 
This decision also illustrates that the courts will analyse the duty of care owed to a secondary accident victim independently of whether any duty was owed or breached to the primary victim. From a policy perspective, the availability of a good cause of action to secondary victims may serve as an appropriate deterrent to intoxicated drivers. The final case note we have today relates to everyone's favourite topic, COVID-19, specifically the Federal Court decision of Outback Music Festival Group, PTYLTD, and Everest Syndicate. In the decision, it was considered whether a policy exclusion operated to deny a festival organiser's claim to recover over $3 million in lost revenue suffered as a consequence of a COVID-related cancellation. By way of background, the plaintiff was the organiser and promoter of the Big Red Bash. Some of you may know that is an annual festival which takes place in the Simpson Desert. The 2020 festival was scheduled to take place in July and was anticipated to draw a crowd of about 10,000, 65% of whom would be travelling from interstate. On 24 March 2020, as the COVID-19 pandemic was first raising its head, The plaintiff's director decided to cancel the event amid health and safety concerns and a number of operational issues resulting from the closure of state borders and imposition of travel warnings. The applicant's insurance broker notified the respondent underwriter, a Lloyds of London syndicate, of a claim under the plaintiff's event cancellation policy. The claim was said to be in excess of $3 million. However, underwriters denied the claim in reliance upon an exclusion which relevantly read This insurance does not cover any loss directly or indirectly arising out of, contributed to by or resulting from any communicable disease or threat or fear of communicable disease, whether actual or perceived, which leads to A, the imposition of quarantine or restriction in movement of people or animals by any national or international body or agency, or B, any travel advisory or warning being issued by a national or international body or agency. Chief Justice Alsop held that the insuring clause of the policy was engaged since, on any view, the event had to be cancelled. The only issue, therefore, was whether or not the exclusion clause operated. In relation to the first component of the exclusion clause, His Honour concluded, uncontroversially it must be said, that COVID-19 is a communicable disease. More critically, his honour then went on to find that with reference to several releases from federal, state and territory governments regarding restrictions of movement on persons entering Australia as a result of COVID-19, as well as state and territory restrictions on border movements, both limbs of the exclusion had been satisfied. Notably, his honour also accepted that National Cabinet, whilst not a subcommittee or part of federal cabinet, was a national body within the meaning of the exclusion clause. Accordingly, his honour found that the respondent was entitled to decline cover for the claim in reliance upon the exclusion. In terms of key implications arising from the decision, it perhaps highlights the importance of carefully considering each individual policy wording with respect to its application in the context of COVID-19. While the courts have declined some attempts to rely on more vaguely worded exclusion clauses relying on statutory provisions which no longer exist, This case is a clear example of the court's long-standing position of adopting a plain language and business-like approach to constructing exclusion clauses. That's all for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks for joining me again today, Simi. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.